to another episode of James Bond and Friend, a weekly podcast from your friends at MI6HQ. I'm Paul Atkinson. I'm joined this week by Phil Nobile Jr., David Lee, Ben Williams, James Page, and Bill Koenig. Could you introduce yourselves, please? Sure. I'm Phil Nobile Jr., editor of Fangoria Magazine. David Lee here, and I run the JamesBondossier.com. Hi, I'm Ben Williams. I write for MI6HQ and MI6 Confidential Magazine. Hi, this is James Page from MI6, and I'm clenching my cheeks as we are doing a Twitter poll on the next Watch Along. And I'm Bill Koenig. I run a blog called The Spy Command. So we'll watch a Goldfinger then, James, eh? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> it, it will not be Goldfinger. <laughs> it was not nominated. Well, we've got uh, a little bit of James Bond and No Time to Die news to catch up on for a change. So, you know, don't buckle in for two and a half hours of uh, commentary this time. This is going to be short and sharp. I've got places to be. Shall we start with the news that Pierce Brosnan has a really lovely house in Hawaii? <laughs> Yeah, and it's not just a lovely house. It's it's the kind of the outhouse. He was complaining that he'd been kind of shoved into the into the corner of of his <laughs> of his sprawling uh, Hawaiian mansion. Chickens. Yeah, it's oh, I'm out here in what we call the you know the outhouse. It's just like wow, okay, that's um, it's a really nice outhouse, dude. It's definitely made him a lot more chill than those interviews he was giving uh, circa 2002. The Hawaii lifestyle is good, is good for him. Yeah, he's very, very relaxed. It did have a very golden eye quality to to it, though. The the, the feel of his uh, his home there um, reminded me a lot of Golden Eye. Did anybody else watch it? I did not. I didn't. I watched Calvin Dyson's Twitter feed. <laughs> great, great. <laughs> well, Cal- Calvin Calvin gave a, a good play by play and and was sort of quoting the good bits and putting his own commentary on it. So it was in a way. Uh, enjoyable, and I came upon it late. Otherwise, I would have tuned into Pierce. Pierce is a by by a pretty wide margin my least favorite Bond, but he's got a very sort of agreeable, affable social media presence, and he's kind of settled into his dotage in a, in a way that's very sort of pleasing to observe. I also kind of monitor it by uh, what by people tweeting it because I I had this um, freelance project I was working on, I couldn't get away, but. Uh, but I did catch social media people who people who had questions asked were incredibly thrilled. Hey, I got my yes, yes, my question. But uh, I got the impression it kind of ran out after about the first hour. In other words, he was pretty talkative in the first hour of the movie, and then was kind of not so talkative in the second half. Like he, it might have been better if there'd perhaps been sort of like a host with him who could have like uh, helped him through the slow spots. Yeah, sure. I think it's always better to have somebody to kind of bounce off and keep things moving along. Like um, when when uh, Roger Moore used to do his kind of on-stage conversations, uh, Gareth Owen would be on stage with him and kind of help uh, help him along, just kind of like steer the uh, the raconteur's memories into the, hmm. into the right Although, directions. to be fair, he pulled off some pretty good DVD commentaries that are now no longer new because that was also circa 2002. I was rather impressed with the amount of energy and stamina he had for commentating all seven of his films we we touched on this either on the last sort of commentary podcast or at some point it's just nice to put him on in the background he has just such a a a lovely tone to his voice you know kind of a, a slightly avuncular kind of quality that you can just kind of put on in the background and soothes you even if it's just a commentary on uh on his on his films now we're talking about roger moore correct Okay. Yeah, yeah, because since, yeah, since yeah. we said seven films, no, it's uh, he's also a presence. Remember, in the uh, 1990s, they did those uh, DVD extras, and uh, John Cork directed, them. and he was a big part of the you know the making of featurettes of his film. Yeah, he, he was a nice presence on those. There, there sometimes, sometimes I don't have a time to watch the entire movie. I'll I'll go rewatch those making of featurettes and. Moore is a you know, very nice presence. Obviously, Sean Connery wasn't going to do, do commentary about his, but uh, so it was nice to get his perspective in those, uh, in those DVD extras. What I will say about uh, Pierce Brosnan is that you know, he has uh, a fan's enthusiasm for, for the films, and you know, whatever way you, you cut it, he's, he's genuinely thrilled to have been a part of them, and that definitely comes across in in the way he, he speaks about them. So, you know, that's that's nice that despite any kind of, you know, animosity or bad blood that might have might have existed at, at one point, he's only got kind of a, a fondness for them. Uh, 
in everything or nothing when Pierce is sort of like struggling to he he admits that the his second through fourth films run together and he's sort of cracking up and that they left that in was such a I don't know a breath of fresh air it was such a candid moment about his his attitude toward the films at that point he wasn't uh, bitter he wasn't you know obsessive but he was just sort of like trying to remember this period in his life that he had said went by so fast. I was just going to say he was also kind of in the whole Bond conversation for like for a long time before he actually became Bond. I mean, um, from about four your eyes only onward, because, of course, his wife at the time is in that movie. And I remember him going on the David Letterman show here in the United States. And uh, it was when Letterman had his late night show on NBC. And, you know, Letterman just flat out let him have it and said, so are you going to be the next James Bond? And like, he's like twisting in the wind because he's like trying to like, he doesn't want to think, okay, what am I going to say here? Um, I mean, he looked very uncomfortable. So that was something he had to deal with for a long time. And then, of course, the whole thing where he was Bond for a while and he wasn't because NBC renewed his series and all this, that and the other. So, I mean. While he only did four films, I mean, stop, think about it. He's essentially kind of in the Bond bubble in one way or another from about 82 until 2004. Assuming that Brosnan saw this, you got to wonder, you actually signed the contract and then NBC undoes it and then well not not only that bill he gets his photo taken with the scene one act one clapperboard right. recovery broccoli and, and a <laughs> pinewood right and then and then eon have the gold to come out and say timothy Dunn was always our first <laughs> right I, I was about to say that because there's and you can see this on youtube it's from the today show uh here in the states and they're at you know it's uh the reporter is talking to covey broccoli and michael g wilson and you know he's saying oh no timothy Dalton was always our First choice. Oh well, we talked to Pierce, but uh, no, no, he really, he really wasn't in the picture. Those aren't direct quotes, but I mean that's the tone of what was said. So you go through Didn't that. Did they actually have a, a press conference though at some point? Some, um, maybe I'm misremembering. Maybe this is they my. Had a, they had a photo shoot. They had a photo, yeah. yeah, they they took a picture of him signing his contract. You know, he's flanked by Broccoli and Wilson, Cubby Broccoli and Michael G. Wilson. And then there's a picture of him talking to the two of them outside the 007 stage. I, I, the, the photo's real weird because it looks like Michael G. Wilson's doing a ballerina <laughs> step. It's a very odd pose for him. And then, you know, the, yeah, and then the clapperboard shot that James mentioned. So, you know, he's, I mean, that's as close as you can. And then it's like NBC renewed the show, like there was a 60-day option and they renewed on the 58th day or whatever it was. And uh, I mean, just, you know, I mean, that's an incredible roller coaster, just that. And then years later, he's back in the picture, gets it, does four films, and then then suddenly he's not Bond. And, you know, the story goes, he got word about it, about the decision, you know, on the telephone and uh, all that. So, yeah, so, so Pierce Brosnan had quite the roller coaster, whether you like him as Bond or not, he dealt with, he had to deal with Bond uh, on his psyche for you know literally decades yeah i think out of all of them he's the one that you'd actually give some bandwidth to to be cranky about it but he's not <laughs> whereas you know others were better treated and they're they're kind of a bit sneery at it um i i the only thing i the only thing i disagree with you bill is, uh, is on the like the, the suddenly he wasn't james bond it, it was like a year <laughs> of him him probably not coming back and rumors in the press right. and Eon snooping around Craig and other people and and all the rest of it. I stand corrected. He was haggling for money as well. Yeah, I stand corrected on that. But still, though, to to get the final, final word on a phone call, that's that's not the greatest. Barbara took Dame Judi Jens out to lunch to tell her that they were going to reboot with Casino Royale and and Judi got in front of it, right, and said, oh, when do we start? So they were willing (laughs) to meet her in person to let it go. But not their star. Yeah, but it's a but it's quite a long way to Malibu, isn't it? <laughs> it's quite a, it's quite a, an arduous journey to have to undertake to come to California and sit on the beach and tell tell your stars face to face. You hard. mean within driving distance of M- MGM HQ? Yeah. <laughs> well, and and yes, he's a, he's led a comfortable, successful life, no question. But I mean, it's still a crappy thing to do the way they handle. I wasn't implying for a moment that it wasn't a crappy way to find out. I just meant it's, you know, 
it would have been nice. It's not like he was digging ditches for a living. No, no question. It- I, I, I can imagine that you know that that moment of waking up one morning and you're and you're James Bond, and then getting a telephone call in the afternoon, and you, you're not James Bond anymore. It must be a, a, a bit of a a psychic blow because it does inform your persona and uh, how people treat you. As he admits on the uh, on the video, he said his personality blended with the character, and he doesn't know how much of him is him and how much of him is Bond now. Right. And then the Aston Martin burns in a fire, and then yeah. Well, and also- well, he said he said on the uh, on the commentary after he did the Bond James Bond line that he went back to his trailer and he looked in the mirror and he said, "I couldn't help but do say my name in the mirror over and over. You know, did I do it right? Whether he realised that he was saying it or not, he said." I said my name in the mirror. Yes, right. Um, mm. So in some weird way, he he has tied himself in with that character. And, and also that's not unheard of for someone who's played a character over a number of years for that to happen when it finally is over. There's this you know, moment of decompression. I, I, I heard this anecdote. It was about Jack Lord when Hawaii Five-0 was over, over. He, he'd done it for 12 years. And so this guy, it was a TV special. So this guy was the guy that Jack Lord was talking to in this moment. And this guy is describing what Jack Lord was doing. And he, it, the, what the guy said was something the effect it was. You could see him like decompressing after, you know, 12 years of doing this character. Like he's like finally coming out of it. And it varies from actor to actor, but they invest a significant part of their psyche in their characters. And like I said, with with Pierce Brosnan, it wasn't just doing four movies. It was like all the stuff that happened before. The the story that grabbed me out of that whole thing that I hadn't heard before was the Aston Martin phone call the day before Die Another Day was going to be announced saying, no, we're not going to give you a free car. And then, you know, Brosnan got his agent to sweat them. Like, I'm not going anywhere near that car during any publicity unless I get a free car. And, uh, <laughs> he got his free car. You know, uh, um, unreported story. When everything or nothing was the game was in production, Brosnan was trying to, well, you know, reportedly, allegedly, um, get Mercedes-Benz into it because, you know, he would be a Mercedes-Benz spokesperson. So maybe there's something to that with Aston Martin's decision. Who knows? what their thinking was. Well, and also bear in mind, Aston Martin at that time was owned by Ford. So you have an additional layer of complexity in the deal making. And Aston have always kind of been teetering on the brink of bankruptcy, whether they can really, (laughs) really just afford to give away cars is a, am I reading too much into the idea that with the, with the, the passing of Roger Moore, we kind of want Pierce to, to be the, the, uh, Uncle Bond. Yeah, Uncle Bond, the guy, the guy who sort of enjoys his tenure and, and, and is, is okay leaning back on it. And, and is that sort of what was the, the biggest takeaway about him doing a live watch of, of one of his own movies, which is, I don't know, maybe unheard of in terms of... Uh... Yeah, I, I hadn't thought about that at all, but I think you, you're probably right there, Phil, yeah. He might be, he might be um, an uncle. <laughs> He's not your favorite uncle, is he? <laughs> I mean, you know, he has got he has got that lovely kind of avuncular quality to him. Um, but you know, if you had to go around Pierce's house or I had to go around Roger's house, you know, I, I, I would I would listen to a, a Roger Moore story uh, a million times over than you know um, Pierce kind of. He doesn't quite have the same. He's not. He's not a storyteller. He's yeah. not as self-aware. I yeah, think. He's, I mean, he's I mean, all the way up his own ass in his Instagram captions and whatnot. He's very sort of, uh, you know, uh, uh, ethereal, but a little try-hard ethereal. I think when he's writing his little captions. I don't know. Is anybody, anybody paying attention to that, or is it just me? I like the way he calls himself the Brosnan, <laughs> you know, which is great. <laughs> That's right. You didn't see Roger Moore call himself the Moore. Um, <laughs> Um, um, if you're listening, Pierce, uh, which you obviously do week <laughs> on week to these podcasts, where did you think you got the idea of a watch through? <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I, all I'll say is, um, I, you know, see, I, I, I don't mean to offend. If you do feel like you want to invite me over, don't feel <laughs> that you can't. 
That's all I'm saying. I mean, he went. He said it a couple of times, which is he feels really uncomfortable watching his own stuff, and he's never watched one of his Bond movies with his kids. It's like, why agree to it? It's a little odd. Yeah, I have to I have to say it is um, a strange thing to do. But at the same time, I think part of what it is is that there are so many celebrities at this point doing their bit in TM uh, to to kind of help people through this uh, this lockdown. And I wonder whether that had, I don't, I, I wonder if, if the circumstances were different, if we weren't on some kind of, um, you know, enforced lockdown, whether we would actually have, he would actually have agreed to do oh, I doubt that. It. Yeah. So I think it's, I think it partly plays into a kind of a, I'm doing my bit. Yeah. I wouldn't necessarily count on him doing another three of these. <laughs> According to Calvin, Although he said he wished he could fast question. forward. Pierce said that, I think at one point. Well, if he thinks Goldeneye drags, he's going to have one other thing coming, right? When he <laughs> watches The Was Not Enough. Die another day, watch along is the one we all want, of course. I think, uh, I think a lot of people people wanted him to fast forward. It was interesting, though. Um, I noticed that um, when, the, when the questions were being asked by people, obviously for, for, uh, for Pierce, these are just ran, random people's names. But I tended to, to go, oh, I know that guy. Yeah, and all those folks were smart enough to get their questions in before the pre-recording was done and not the fake hashtag because it was just being played out. Sorry if that spoiled the illusion for anybody, but it wasn't real time. Well, I guess they had to do it that way in case, um, you know, there was a mistake made, like technically speaking, you know, you, you could have gone two hours of talking and none of it would have been recorded. LeVar Burton did a, a live read-along um, and had absolutely no idea how to the technology that he was uh, was using to do it, um, and so there was probably about ten or fifteen minutes of him just sort of staring there, um, saying, "Is this is this working? Is this on?" And um, <laughs> hearing hearing Lavar Burton say, "Oh fuck it, we'll just do it," um, was quite a quite fun also i wonder if legally you know they were like we've got to kind of scrub through it before we play it out because just in case you defame somebody or something one other real quick thought about pierce brosnan the going back to how he exited i always come back to this his selection was basically cubby broccoli's last major decision and then he turned everything over to michael g wilson and barbara broccoli after that he was not their choice you know did that Mm. You know, did that play a role with how things, you know, happened in the early 2000s? I don't know. Until they invent a mind-reading machine, there's no way to know, but you can't help but at least wonder about that possibility. I think you're right, Billy. It probably affected how they dealt with it. One of the things I've always said about Barbara's choices, whether it's actors or filmmakers, they tend to come from a more kind of art house side of cinema. And... Um, Despite the the kind of the backlash that casting Daniel Craig got initially, she obviously made a, a, a smart choice in hiring somebody who was a professional actor. Not to, that's not to disparage any of the other actors who played the role, um, but you know somebody who this was their their craft. It wasn't a George Lazenby who had never acted. Yes, quite. I mean, but he's he's more than that. He's no, he's he's he was a professional. I I agree with you. It's I, he had he had a he had a long amount of acting experience. I mean, you know, in fact, that was true with when they back in the day when they picked Connery. It wasn't while Connery wasn't well known. He he had had a very decent acting resume. You know, when they picked him, you know, it it um, he was only unknown to the general public. You know, people in the business. You know. Lana Turner knew who he was, you know, had been in a movie with him, which is why that one line gets inserted to Thunderball, which is the name of the movie he did with her. Another time, another yeah. place. The, the scene where um, Craig loses Vespa, you know, and, and he's there with Eva Green on the, on the roof of the sinking villa. You know, I, I wonder really whether any of the other previous Bond actors would have been able to to really deliver in maybe the same Dalton. way that uh, Craig did. I think Dalton could have pulled it off. Yeah, maybe, maybe. Um, but Dalton, whilst Dalton is is a is a great actor, he's with the greatest respect. I feel like he's more of a theatre actor um, and a classic kind of theatre actor. Whereas I think Craig understands how to be big by being sure. small, if that makes sense, without 
any heightest jokes. I, no, I, I know exactly what you mean. A friend of mine, he once critiqued Dalton. He's a big Bond fan. He felt Dalton's problem was he was delivering lines as if he's like trying to make sure the guy in the last row of the theater can hear. Whereupon, when you act for the camera, it's a different deal. And, and the friend of mine who made the comment felt that Dalton had not um, adjusted his game enough for mm. that reality. I mean, to go back to a, a you know all-time type acting thing, uh, Gary Cooper, it was said, people would go on the set and watch him do a scene and they think, oh, he's just awful. But then they'd see the rushes and it's like, oh, wow, that's really good. And it was, you know, because he was acting for the camera rather than anybody who happened to be, you know, on the set watching. I, I'm, I'm a trained actor. Uh, God, it sounds terrible to say that, but um, I, I actually am. Um, but one of the things that they do, you know, there's lots of different techniques that that, that you can be trained in doing um, and um, different different methods. And so, like, if you're doing Stanislavski, you're it's it's about breathing it's about projecting it's about making your voice as you say go to the go to the guy at the back acting for camera is an entirely different thing and it's much smaller and it's much more nuanced and i think craig is is very much more a a film actor um than say say dalton is and on top of everything else you just said you're also doing it in pieces sometimes really itty bitty pieces you know, mm-hmm. it's it's very rare to be acting for a TV show or movie where you do a really long monologue. There's no monologue. There's there's also changes of location that you might not also be performing with the person that you're, you know, the reversal is on. So um, Pierce was talking about when he did the scene with Femke Jensen, you know, doing the Bond, James Bond introduction. And he said, you know, uh, Femke was doing her piece and then I came back for my reversals. So they're not even doing it to each other, if you see what I mean. Right. Well, yeah, on the close up, certainly. You know, it's, it's actually, you know, an, it's an assistant or somebody reading the other part's lines and then the person who's being filmed then has to react as if they're talking to the character. That kind of technique is, is, is obviously very different to, to, to being on, on the stage where it's more orga- organic. I didn't see the entirety of, of Brosnan's commentary. I, I got a flavor, but I did enjoy what I, I saw, but in a kind of abstract kind of way. It wasn't something like, as I, I mentioned before, I would happily put on a Roger Moore commentary as pure kind of, you know, and and again, it wouldn't even necessarily have to be something that I was rooted to and, and staring at. It could be, it, it could fill up my background of my day very happily. Whereas I don't, really feel that I would ever put that on again as a kind of a something to entertain me or to, to fill up the space. It wasn't a lively chat. No, it was, I mean, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a piece of curiosity. It's a curiosity in, in some senses. And I mean that in the, in the most flattering and favorable way. Whether it's a collaborator or, or a moderator, it's it's always better when it's a conversation. It sounds like they just sort of pointed a camera at him and, and hoped for magic. I was actually going to ask Phil and David, you've been relatively quiet. Is there somebody from the Bond world you would like to see do a similar kind of exercise? Well, we've not heard Craig do a single commentary, I don't think. Um, and I would I, I want to give him five years away, and then I want to hear him sort of reassess his uh, his uh, tenure. That would be interesting. I will say though, in, in the conversation about this, you know, comparing. Um, what could this could Dalton do what Craig did? Could Craig do what Connery did? We're in this age of deep fakes where we could be putting any of these guys in scenes from their movies. And what do we get? Burt Reynolds and Dr. No. <laughs> yes. Has anyone seen? Yes, yes. I have. Yeah. I, I have seen that. And I, I had a couple problems with it. One, they're using, you know, they're using Burt Reynolds face from the seventies. Yeah. You know, it's like, okay, to make it like, if you want to make it deep fake, I'm not sure the right word, you know, to make it comparable, you got to get Burt Reynolds face from like 1962. And unfortunately, most of the stuff from 1962 is in black and white, so that doesn't work. Sure. Um, you also would do uh, Burt Reynolds without a mustache because there is no way that they would have 
Bond right. have a mustache? And the thing is, you, you need deliverance and era. voice, um, or voice. even before when um, when he was on just before he hit movie stardom, uh, he he looks his most Bondian in a TV show called Dan August, where he's clean shaven. So he fights Bruce Lee. Uh, no, he doesn't. <laughs> no. No, that was uh, supposed to be Hal Needham uh, in that movie. But um, oh wait, I'm thinking of James Franciscus fighting Bruce Lee. Never mind. Okay, I'm, ju- I'm just looking up Dan August on uh, on Google right now, and yeah, there is a, there's a couple of shots. You know, yeah, I guess he's got a, a certain Connery esque quality to it. I I, I, I have I have the series, and he, he he's kind of like a cross between Connery and Brando. He had always kind of had a Brandoish vibe, but he struts like connery in that show to go back to your original question i I think it's kind of tragic that we don't have connery on record really digging into his time in the franchise beyond the occasional sort of four by three taped interviews from that i think are probably from the late 80s so yeah and and he's 90 now and it's and we're not going to get him and so you know i i lament that his his feelings toward the franchise weren't such that he was more open and available to sort of talk about it in in recent years when we could have gotten some really good material from him. Well, he was also paid and uh, he got an advance. Don't forget to do his uh, memoirs, which he then flipped into that. What it's, what it's like to be Scottish book, which didn't sell very well. <laughs> so we're not, we don't even have, you know, memoirs from him either. Well, history um, will be, be, will be written by everybody else about him. I think. <laughs> yep. I think it's sort of, it is kind of sad and it's sad that he's held on to this negativity for, 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 for so long around it and i understand that sometimes there are scores that don't get settled and um, well i would have thought he would have followed like uh, lazenby shows that you can have the arc right not having anything to do with it and coming all the way back to being a uh, ambassador for the series yeah making your peace with it embracing it contextualizing it in some way uh, on that note, does anyone have any insight into this Daniel Craig Bond documentary that was supposed to be coming on the heels of the film? Yeah, it was supposed to. It was supposed to air, and it was in TV listings in some countries, and then they pulled it at the last minute. He was very on record as saying he didn't want to give away the magic of of, of how these movies happen. So he didn't want to. Sh- he was against um, deleted scenes. He was against bloopers. Uh, he said this in an interview anyway at one point, and I'm curious how much of that is sort of relaxed in this thing. I know the screen test is supposedly in there, right? Yeah, I have a feeling it's going to be 20 seconds of screen test and 58 minutes of people saying how Daniel Craig's the best James Bond. Before they went on air. Maybe 58 minutes and 30 seconds, but... Um... <laughs> it's a very interesting point, Phil, because I think it's one thing to kind of say, don't look behind the curtain of how this is all done, but that's pretty much the bread and butter of fandom now. Really, we we all want to look behind the scenes. We need to kind of, you know, every special edition, every kind Pick of through it. Yeah, for, forgive me for bringing up Dan August for a second time, which I never thought I'd do. But like <laughs> that show, I but did. that show helped make him a star, not through the usual means, because it was only on for a year, so it wasn't a successful series. Rather, he grabbed the blooper reel because usually the practice was you would destroy the blooper reel. Uh, you know, you you know the cat. You know the crew would watch it once, and then you destroy it. But he he right. grabbed it and he took it with him on talk show appearances. So he would then <laughs> like so. Oh, let's take a look at the blooper reel. Up until that time, people didn't know he had a sense of humor because most of the parts he played were like really serious characters. And so, the, so for the first time, audiences had a glim, glimpse of his sense of humor, and that helped his. That actually helped his career. It's, Kind of an odd. Well, then he then he started to put the blooper reels actually into the, the credits yeah. of the movies that mm-hmm. he was doing, and you know that became a kind of a a, a thing, and then something that you would look forward to. You'd sit through and watch the, you know, it's like the the Marvel end sequence of its day, right? You know, yeah. yeah I, I remember the first time I saw one of those, you know, Burt Reynolds blooper reel things, you know, and then Jackie Chan started to do it as well. It, you know, for for a period of time in the in the seventies, there that was like the thing, wasn't it, to have your blooper reel in the in the credits. In a way, that's ultimately why he never would have worked as Bond, because once Burt Reynolds figured out that people were paying for Burt Reynolds, Burt Reynolds became the thing that mattered beyond <laughs> the character, beyond the arc. You see it in in his two Gator movies. In White Lightning, it's a movie that has Burt Reynolds in it, and then Gator is a Burt Reynolds movie with a capital Burton, capital Reynolds, and it's it's very much. 
that's that he figured out that formula. And once he did that, he became, I believe, uh, maybe next to Eastwood or maybe even past Eastwood, the the, the biggest box office star of the he, 70s. He, he was right up there. He was right up there. And it lasted into the early 80s. Understanding your brand back then was something that maybe a lot of actors didn't really kind of understand um, how to kind of market yourself or or how to kind sort of, of ahead of the curve before before actors were really kind of doing that. Sure. And, the, and then the thing about most Bond actors is they don't realize that they're sort of sacrificing that at the altar of Bond. A lot of them sort of aren't, aren't sure what to do with themselves after Bond and, and, and never enjoy that level of success again. Connery kind of brought it back around pretty late, I think. But the rest of them, you know, were doing like you know, Italian crime thrillers and, and television work. And I don't know, you know, I think probably that's what we have to look forward to with Daniel Craig is he's probably going to get some prestige television stuff. On HBO, a Knives Out sequel or two, if we're lucky. I was going to say, just stick to Benoit <laughs> Blanc movies and call it. <laughs> call it a day. I can recommend yeah. some watch-alongs with Casino Royale in 2025. It'd be all right. <laughs> From sure. his Malibu home, or his uh, New York penthouse. It'd be all right. Yeah. Right. Do we do we feel like cinema? And feel free to put this on the blooper reel. How how do we feel like uh, this coronavirus is going to affect cinema and cinema releases? Um, going forward are we going to be getting more daniel craig movies being made or is it you're going to get more inexpensive movies being made for, for vod i think they're figuring yeah. out that, that there's a certain price point in terms of budget where it just makes just as much sense to just put it on vod at a premium not have oh, to Christ, nicholas cage has been doing that equation for 15 years hasn't he <laughs> yeah it's he's like... kind of he's flooding the market a little bit I, I, you know, there's no real hard data. There's, there's polls and there's, and there's opinion poll, uh, things where people are, some people are saying they're going to go to the theater the day they open. Other people are like, I'm going to wait six months. And Hollywood doesn't want to mm-hmm. hear that the audience is going to wait six months after theaters open to go back in. Because then what do you do with your Wonder Woman sequel? If, if everyone's going to wait for it to come out on VOD anyway, why are you bothering with the theatrical release? Because you're just going to maybe embarrass yourself. We're talking about people going also, to the cinema, but we also need to think about the practicalities of making the films now. They're, you know, like, they're not small-scale exercises. They get a lot of people in a room. Well, they can be. Steven Soderbergh is head of a committee for the Directors Guild or somebody. I guess his main experience having directed Contagion made him a That's typical Hollywood logic. About... Uh, who should we have? Head this up, the guy that made yeah. the movie about what's going on right now. Him, because he'll know all about it. Right, yeah. <laughs> Ironically, he's also making movies on his iPhone and needs no crew practically at this point. He was already like, you know, it's like most of his movies, he's the director of photography under a different name. Yep. And, and he edits his movie under a different name. So you have about, it's, <laughs> you know, so you have... All these different people who are really Steven. You just make Soderbergh. the check out to um, Steven Soderbergh, <laughs> right? As long as the check clears, yeah. that's the thing. But this is this is the point, isn't it? Because like if your if your actual budget for your movie is let's say one hundred and fifty million dollars, but then you spend another one hundred and fifty million dollars marketing it, and however much in distribution, and and, uh, and obviously, you know, once it does get distributed, it goes into the theaters and they take their cuts. You know, and also you're kind of pushing for your opening weekend numbers, right? You're not looking for a sort of a slow burn thing. You're hoping that if you get Tom Cruise in this movie, you can pay him $20 million because it's going to recoup back on the first Well, the reason day, they right? need to recoup it so early is to pay the banks off. So but then you've also got this sort of situation where you think, where you look at a lot of mumblecore uh, movies, you look at kind of like the, the lower budget horror films. Um, these, these tend to... Soderbergh movies. Soderbergh movies. They have lives of their own. They get good word of mouth. They don't rely on a $150 million worth of marketing. You can watch them online. They don't necessarily have to have big stars. I sort of feel like that's kind of more the sort of cinema that I want. And also, you know, when you have a lower budget, you tend to kind of, you know, you're not throwing the money hose at, at, at things to kind of create a solution. Uh, you need to be more artistic and more inventive and more creative. Well, I think you can see that within the Bond franchise itself, Ben. So when they cut the budgets back... That film, typically, we look back on more fondly than others. But then again, you've also got situations where you've got something like Skyfall. You know, they dialed back in a lot of their locations. It travelled the world, but didn't go anywhere. If you know what I mean, right? That was kind of one of the one of the first kind of examples of like, here we are in wherever it is, but it's it's the back lot or it's CGI, 
yeah, Shanghai CGI'd into into London. You send out a skeleton crew to get the uh, establishing shots. Yeah, if that. I know they did send a small crew to Shanghai. They did. But yeah, but the only significant location shoot was Istanbul, which is like all within the <laughs> in the pre-title sequence. At, you know, after yeah. that, it's you know the UK or a mix of you know second or third unit establishing shots with the studio because it's because it is the UK, so it's kind of you know I guess it's it technically is on location uh, in London or Hankley Common standing in for Scotland where it is. Every every exotic location, even even the Japanese island i know it wasn't supposed to be jet in japan but like you know they went oh we uh, we could we could go there or we could just cgi this island in and then do it all as sets whilst it's you know whilst it has that kind of travelogy kind of vibe to it it does sort of feel like you you know you know it's not real and you know you are being kind of you know taken along a little bit and not that i have any kind of real objection to kind of a little bit of cgi dotted here and there it's like but when they when they did uh, lennon palace and they kind of like changed the roof yeah i mean it suffers the same problem as a lot of the marvel movies does which is you don't actually feel that you're actually anywhere yeah i kind of think that's one of, and, and we we discussed this on the commentary for for moonraker but I, I think bill said you know one of the one of the great selling points about the films was was the fact that you were going to these locations and you could have a vicarious ex- a travel experience by doing this. You don't have that now. I mean, in Skyfall's defense, I think Shanghai worked. I don't think the Japanese-esque island worked so well because it wasn't within people's realms of believability. I think a large set and some CGI doesn't quite take you to a place that you know exists. <laughs> right. I, I, think you're, I think you're right, Paul. I mean... You know, Shanghai is is believably Shanghai in it, but I think also it's kind of it just feels cheated a, a little bit. It'd be fun to edit that kind of film and put title cards up for the actual locations. Sorry, sorry, sorry. On the screen, I walked past the Shang. Well, I used to because obviously I don't live in London anymore. But I used to walk past the Shanghai Tower every day on my way to work. So it's a bit sort of weird to have you know very obvious london locations standing in for uh... the problem the problem the bond series has got is twofold one is it's been known historically as a globe trotting film franchise which is going to be an issue and two is bond really can only operate overseas does that well that, that hasn't really been uh, holding him back over the last couple of films people live in los angeles have like known about this for like 60 or 70 years <laughs> seeing their their environs substitute for various uh, exotic places. Yeah, the promise of the franchise is that you're going you're going to be taken on an adventure that you can't you know maybe get to yourself. The thing is, in its early years, what they would do is they would concentrate on one location. Sure, Doctor No with Jamaica, from Russia with Love with Istanbul, Thunderball with Nassau. You only live twice with Japan. Then they eventually got to this thing where it's like five, six, seven locations and the need for title cards to keep it all straight. In the early movies, you always have a feel of a feeling of actually uh, traveling somewhere and spending some time there. And the, the locations are, in a lot of respects, they give a lot of character to the films. The, this constant jetting from one place to the other just means yes. that you, you, you never actually feel like you've got your, your feet on the ground before you're off again somewhere else. And so you, you never pick up the character of a place, which I think is a big thing that's missing from the recent films. I wasn't part of the Dr. No watch along, but I listened to it. Some discussion at the beginning about the, the three blind mice and all the time that they take to like get to the Queens Club. In that relatively short amount of time you do get a feel for what kingston's like and i realize okay that's 62 it's a different era of filmmaking but you really do in just a very short amount of time get a sense of the place where this story takes place right and that's that's the point of it when when we start to analyze movies with our 2020 lenses and you're like well why are they walking through all of this like they're blind it's well well it's because the filmmaker wants you to see the lay of the land and that trumps like the quote unquote logic of having them pretend to be blind for so long, as, as I, I think was pointed out in that listen along. But it's, you know, like when people say, you know, the, the famous John Ford story about uh, yeah, the, yeah. the big chase and stagecoach, why don't the villains just shoot the horses? And John Ford said, well, then the movie would be over. You kind of, right. <laughs> you've got to prioritize certain things for, for, for your audience. And I think Bill's point about 
you know, you're, yeah. you're getting this sort of postcard snapshot of, of Kingston. It's a very efficient and effective way of setting up your locale. And one of the other things I would say uh, kind of comes back to what we were discussing on the Die Another Day thing. And David said, you know, uh, Cadiz is, you know, obviously filling in for, uh, uh, for Cuba. Um, and even though that that isn't the actual location, you do get a sense of, of place with that because of the architecture, but also, you know, because of the, the Maison scene, the, uh, you know, the art direction. And, and the fact that, you know, Brosnan is actually there and it feels, it doesn't feel sort of second unity. And even though it's not actually Cuba, you, you're kind of more invested in it. Whereas I think when they just kind of do a flashcard, an establishing shot, and then cut to a studio or a, or a, sure. or a different location, it's, it isn't quite the same thing. So there is a 1979, there was a movie filmed in my hometown called Breaking Away. Excellent film. And even though in the film, there are shots that don't match up to the actual geography of the area, the you know it is all in that it was filmed in that area and it gives you a sense of what it's like and it's you know it's a very stylized version of what that's like but it's still a real place yeah i mean it's it's the one movie i can say i went to the world premiere of um, so. <laughs> well i don't know if you guys ever watched sons of anarchy but there's a season where they all go to ireland they obviously had some actual doubles in ireland you know they did some some location shooting and some kind of helicopter shots or drone shots of them riding. And then they were cut back to them, obviously, you know, a mile away from outside of Burbank. Uh, <laughs> up. Um, With the same rocks that Spock stood on in some episode yeah, exactly. of Star Trek. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The, Vas- the Vasquez rocks. Um, and it's, and it's just kind of like, well, the light's different. The trees are different. You know, the, the quality of, everything is just different and and you've you've matched up this kind of location to, you know these you're trying to match these two things up and you know they're just too disparate you just your, well, your brain rejects it i mean going back to what we watched last week i mean moonraker we talked about it in that scene where they're outside the chateau for the shooting scene and they're supposed to be in california right yeah but, yeah but it's just i've never bought that it just didn't work did it no you can you can you can take a a building brick by brick and put it somewhere else, but you can't change the, the quality of light, the trees, the grass, you know, just everything. You know, there's something particular about just the, the quality of light in Los Angeles, for example, is, you know, and in California generally is, is it's to do with its latitude. It's, you know, it's, it can't really be replicated somewhere else. And if, and certainly not, you, know, you can't stand in front. There's just one someone. light for all Hollywood movies, though. We just light all the scenes the same, and we know that it's just movie lighting. If you're in France, it's lit like Hol- <laughs> it's lit like Hollywood. If you're in Japan, lit like Hollywood. Anyway, we 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 did pretty well for a bunch of people that only watched half of a thing we were half interested <laughs> in. Talk about it for this long. <laughs> Sorry, Pete. I mean, we were interested originally, but you know, <laughs> I will. I will finish this 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 part of the, the the podcast off by just saying, despite what what Phil says, uh, I mean, you know, he he may be your least favorite Bond, but I do have quite a lot of affection for for Pierce's Bond, um, particularly for for his personal journey with the character, uh, but also I think um, I think Goldeneye is a is a great Bond film and one of my favorites, and uh, so for that alone. Um, Definitely. I'm, I'm grateful for him having done this, uh, this commentary. Yeah, I, I don't think it was a surprise that they well, picked Goldeneye for his one shot yeah. at doing this. And meanwhile, perhaps, uh, and perhaps uh, we can like spike <laughs> sales of the Dan August DVD set. Uh, Live in hope. There will be there'll be one sale, Bill. One sale. Do you have shares in in these? <laughs> well, well, that's one more. A spike, I suppose. Yeah. Oh, do you get no, you get like I, a kickback no, every time you mention no, it's, a it's, it's, a red. <laughs> 60s it's this, this, there's, a, there's an organization out there that does burn on demand dvds this is, i think this, this is what i grew up with this is why i was so into the last year's quentin tarantino movie that was my childhood i was i, I was watching death proof the other day and there's a scene where stuntman mike is talking to a bunch of 20 year olds about uh robert urich and dan tan and i doubled for him on vegas and the, and they're all just giving him this blank polite expression and it made me think of bill yeah. <laughs> 
I guess we should get to carry Fukunaga sure. before we uh, leave. What? Yeah, not? we can do all the No Time to Die coverage <laughs> in four minutes, which is about as long as that interview took to make, I think, reading it. So we'll put the link in the description, but we're talking about the interview magazine where they get a, uh, a, a filmmaker who's never seen a Bond movie to interview Kerry Fukunaga, who hadn't really had anything to do with James Bond prior to Casino Except for playing the GoldenEye video game. The, the thing that I most love about the interview is right at the bottom it says special thanks to, to Danny Boyle. <laughs> yeah, for leaving. And it was like, is, it, is that a piss take? <laughs> well, that reminds me of Roger. Is it Roger Moore's book where it says um, with with whom this would not be possible? I think yeah. The, the big the big thing is that Fukunaga's not hasn't been that much of a Bond fan, but. Uh... You know, it just uh... no, but see that, but that's what always happens with these movies. Remember, during the production of Quantum of Solace, Mark Forster, I've always been a big James Bond fan. Yeah. No, he hasn't. It's like, no. And you know what? And the thing is, they don't have to be. They have to be a professional. That's why you hire them. You think they're talented and whatever. But and not being a fanboy is good news. Yeah. It's not a prerequisite at all. In fact, you'd hope that the, the, the people who are the real fanboys are the, are the writers, the people who understand how, how these stories are put together. You want, you want, the, you want the people who are... Um, not sure Quantum is the example for that. Carrie's one of the writers on this one. Uh, yeah, well, that's... A, I mean... But I hear you. Yeah, fresh blood is good, and and you know it's going to get incestuous uh, and a snake eating its own tail if you don't bring in some new voices and some people who have new perspectives. Uh, I mean, I'm pretty sure Phoebe Waller Bridge isn't some diehard Bond fan, but it's an exciting choice as somebody to give us sort of just a new uh, perspective on things. That's that's I'm, all good. I'm thrilled. right, and, let, and let's face it, Richard Maybaum has been dead since 1991. So, <laughs> yeah. like you know, you're gonna the time has come for new blood. What's worrying is his dopey stoner baloney fan theory about the Spectre oh yes dream sequence thing. This theory has been knocking around for obviously since the since the last film. And it's not terribly original. It's not. It's certainly not original. No, um, I, I reckon been, he's yeah. been hanging out on the MI6 forums. Yeah, it's it's something it's something that's been discussed for a really really long time, and I quite that's a cute theory, but it's like maybe not something that you put out. I was about to say also the only time this has ever been done in terms of a professional production was the TV show yep. Dallas, where it's like we ju- we just had a disaster season. How do you we say recoup? professional? <laughs> they people were paid. That's what I mean. It's like it was, and so and we've just had an awful season. Let's uh, let's get our checkbook out. We'll get Pat, Patrick Duffy back because he had been killed off, and you know we'll just pretend this last season didn't happen. And you sure. know you could you could argue though that you know getting Connery back in diamonds was UA pulling pulling the same move. You this know is, this is closer to those fan theories that say oh what all everything in Taxi Driver after the the whorehouse shootout was his death dream or uh, minority report where is the, the last third after they put him in deep freeze is his dream. And it's, it's so unoriginal. And it's, and it's not that this was even like, and I want to say that there's a game of telephone where he tells this woman, Miranda July, who's a filmmaker and a friend of his, it's the whole conceit of interview magazine, that it's an idea that he had by the, by 5 PM that day, I was seeing articles saying it was pitched and it was in the first draft and let's calm down. He he just said it was an idea that he had. <laughs> it's very similar, Phil, to like um, the throwaway joke about the tampon kind of scene. Right. Yes. And that was written up as like, oh, we'll God, make yeah. it into the cut. It's like they didn't even fucking film it. It was a throwaway joke, you know. This fan theory, as I say, has been knocking around for a while. It kind of, it's not a bad thing to kind of enjoy, like play with and enjoy, but I don't think it's something that you want to necessarily make official. And I, and I think, and I think the other thing too, it reminded me of when Lee Tamahori said, uh, "Oh, 007 is just a, you know, a code name." Uh, code name. Yeah, you know, James Bond's just a code name. And I was just like, "Well, 
it's not really. And that might be a theory, but you don't want to take those theories and make them canon. Like, allow people to play yeah. around with them. And I, I personally don't find that this, this theory of, of Bond being in a, in a coma too ridiculous, but I, I, by, by the same token, I kind of also don't necessarily want it to be written in stone. Sure. And I don't believe that it is. But to me, the worrying part is that the guy who did a pass on the script and directed the film thinks it's a cool idea. Like, <laughs> I, I don't – like maybe – you know that that's the the flip side of the uh, fresh blood thing is where they they're going to blow your mind with their crazy theory that you've seen ad nauseum on message boards for the last five years. Maybe he's just using it as an example for how how crazy his brain was going after however many months <laughs> of working on a you know a two hundred million dollar film. <laughs> Let's hope there there was a short film that won an Oscar it won both an Oscar and an Emmy ironically. And I can't remember the name of it, but occurrence um, at Owl Creek Bridge. Yes, thank you. No it problem. Uh, it won uh, a short. It won the Oscar for short film, and uh, ironically, I keep mentioning Jack Lord. Uh, Jack Lord ended up going up to accept the Oscar for the filmmakers in 1964. This is at the time of the Civil War. Guys being hung, and he's like going, you know. Like he, you know, the rope breaks and he makes this elaborate escape. He's about to get home. He's about to get to his beloved. And then it was all a dream and he's dead (laughs) back at the noose. But that's a short film and not part of a continuing franchise. So it's, it's something you can get away with once, not something to put into a franchise. How about this? How about this? Extend Kerry Fukunaga's quote, unquote, idea. And, um, (laughs) Craig, Craig is coming in and out of consciousness at the end of Casino Royale. So did anything after Casino Royale happen? <laughs> or Skyfall. He gets shot and falls off the bridge. The end. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> this is him drowning. Everything up to that is, yeah. Or, or instead of bridge in Istanbul. Or like, you know, it looks like Craig Bond's about to die. And then suddenly like, you know, it's like Pierce Brosnan bond in bed oh i just had this really <laughs> nasty dream <laughs> i would i would i would love that and then just continue with the rest of dying another day yeah. <laughs> oh, we could, yeah we could like just fix that film right sure. pick it up from the underground bunker on i think it would be where he'd slept with jinx right and then she's got she's gone off in the morning and he wakes up and he kind of feels feels next to him and he what a strange dream that was and then looks out the window and sees it boarding the the boat. It'd, be, it'd be like South Park. I'll, I'll go with that. I think we can agree that was not a good idea. It was good that uh, Carrie's right. idea was not acted upon. Do you know something I picked out of it, which was interesting, talking about ideas, and I'll let people just make their own decisions whether they're good or bad. But Fukunaga goes on the record to say it was Barbara Broccoli's idea mm. to put a female double O in this film. Yes. So is that him socially distancing himself from that concept? <laughs> <sighs> I don't think so. I think he'd be happy to take credit for it. I personally, uh, I think it's a fantastic idea. I'm glad that that idea has been out there. I've just, that's just my thing. It's, I I think it's important to have uh, diversity. The thing that worried me about it is he, he, he transitions from saying that to saying, talking about the Jinx spinoff movie. So it doesn't exactly frame it in the, in the light of great idea. There were, there were good reasons not to pursue a Jinx movie that had nothing to do with feminism feminism or anything like that it just was like it was a bad character and just shouldn't have been the subject of a movie right i'm 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 with you but it's just like you know it's it's it just seemed a bit odd to me that he he puts it out there that it was barbara's idea to do this and then pivots to you know the jinx spinoff it's like this doesn't seem so much like an interview as like a drunken conversation at the end of a night because it's uh, you know it's it's like this so where they like make this more feminist and better those words i can guarantee you were never said it's it's um i don't know it it just doesn't seem like a, an interview at all in in many respects and so i i think it's very yeah, candid yeah, that yeah, way. Yeah, certainly, certainly candid. But and and he, he knows the interviewer. He's friends with the interviewer, and uh, probably probably that makes yeah. a big difference because he's not going to prep for for it in the same way. And to me, it seems like he hasn't prepped at all for it. Hey, like me, it's essentially a conversation between two colleagues. Yeah, 
whereupon an interviewer would prep for it, give away too many secrets. So it's like the uh, skilled interviewer typically like holds back the toughest questions at the very end, because if they're too tough, they might, they might bolt and leave. So you want to like, you know, be sure you get enough material to go back and do a story with. No, it, it's like if, if a skilled interviewer were doing it, it would have um, happened in a much different way. Fair enough. But we wouldn't have these talking points either. He would have never spilled that detail I don't think to to uh, some blogger or some some you know outlet that sent right. a journalist over there. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the takeaway that I took from him saying, I can guarantee you that those things were never said. I think was is his just sort of wry way of saying that there, that these things weren't decided on via some kind of agenda. Oh sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, like political agenda, and I, I keep going back to the double O, and I I think that. It's almost like Craig's whole run has been about what haven't we seen James Bond do so far? And we've never seen him sort of be smacked in the face with his own obsolescence, with his own uh, – with a replacement. I mean his 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 uh, his place in the world has been questioned and whether or not he's obsolete has been questioned. But to have a, a retired Bond confronted by a replacement who's everything he isn't is – at least something new. And, and that's sort of been, has been the through line of Craig's run is like, what hasn't Bond encountered yet? And the, it seems of a piece with that to me. Also, I thought it was interesting that uh, Fukunaga also talked about that he lobbied for delays in release. And uh, I don't think the delays happened strictly because of him, but it, he indicates he was a, you know, he was lobbying for the, the decisions that were made. So, you I found that an interesting wrinkle. Yeah. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. he talked about how it was supposed to come out and, you know, he, he said March. March. He, he, meant, yeah. he meant February 14th. Yeah. And then like, oh, that still wasn't enough. So, yeah. I can't blame him, really. I mean, he took over a project that was sort of. Oh, yeah. Oh, I don't blame him. At all. I don't blame him at all. It's just it's. How many directors are going to say I don't need more time? <laughs> Forster, Mark Forster was really public about not having enough time in post-production on quantum, like doing quantum interviews. Yeah. I remember. I, mean, I remember. Yeah. He, he was very unhappy about it with the amount of editing time. he. He's had, also yeah. the same guy who said the script was okay. Right. And he spent a year in post on kite runner. I mean, we've, we've brought it up before, but as to whether it would be the same beast. It was going to be when it hits, uh, hits, which finally does hit theaters slash streaming. I should say when it finally gets a you release. You mean is it sitting on a shelf now, is or it is it tinkering with it? Oh, it's locked because they, it's locked because they'd, they'd have to go back and get more money to to open it up again with unions and all the rules and everything else. And if there were reshoots, you have to find well, one you have to like, can you do reshoots? The answer right now is no. And the uh, yeah, most of the films takes place I, I in a white room. They're built. You just set up, just set up sheets <laughs> in other people's houses. You still have to bring actors into that white room, though. Get them back into shape. Uh, just CGI. <laughs> but you have to like get to the CGI room. My, my point is everybody's <laughs> locked down. They can't leave their homes. White is a very difficult thing to, to, to create uh-huh. digitally. Six, cost um, extra. White. Um, um, I did wonder if Craig buzz cuts his hair after a film <laughs> so he can't go do reshoots. <laughs> like Lazenby growing the beard. If there's like a... 15 minute Skype call in the middle of this movie when it comes out we'll know that they snuck a reshoot <laughs> <laughs> well you know we've got to pick up on the currents of the day we've got to have the Me Too movement we've got to have the coronavirus outbreak and the work from yes. home situation so you know like yeah they could slip one in title sequence is just well, hand washing James might argue that that's Money Penny and Bond on the phone and uh, that's right they've already done this well, they've already well, done this so ahead of it David uh, sent a text message where he mistyped. He said, "Bond, Bond." Tw-. He meant to say, "Bond twenty six wouldn't be out to twenty twenty five," and he's typed, <laughs> "Bond twenty five wouldn't be out to twenty twenty five." And I said, "Yes, they'll have to make it a period piece." <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I reckon that they're they're going to have to at the beginning of the film. They're going to say, "Sometime in twenty nineteen." There actually is a, there is actually a movie, a very popular movie called One Two Three, directed by Billy Wilder, where they had to do a little prologue that was about a minute because it takes place in Berlin. Says, "Oh, this happened a year ago before the Berlin Wall was built." Oh God! <laughs> so it's been done. It's happened. Yeah, they did. I mean, I think Stephen King made made a statement to say that 
you know, he's currently writing a book and he's had to change when it was set to, to kind of be in line with, uh, with what's happening in the world right now. He already wrote the book, though, didn't he? You no. Know, <laughs> I think, oh, yeah, he did, yeah. <laughs> I think that was an allusion to the to the stand that I'm talking yes. uh, uh, But he, he apparently said that, um, yeah, he just, he changed. Some of it was set on a cruise and, you know. A long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Yeah, it's yeah, going to feel like, like that. that, certainly. Well, in the States, they are talking about one in three theatres probably won't come back, just economically. And when the cinemas do come back, they're going to have to exercise social distancing, so they might be running at 25% capacity. So, AMC is apparently... Yeah, um, so I, November, I'm not like I'm not feeling 100% on November right now. Yeah, I, I'm. I'm not. I'm not at all. I. I, I don't know. I don't know if the, the film's going to get widespread theatrical release at all. I. I, I have. I have a feeling it is going to end up going uh, to to video on demand. Well, I mean, my, my question is more like coming out of Western governments. They are talking about the social distancing having to run through for another year, probably not necessarily lockdown, but social distancing, which means then the theaters are running at twenty five percent capacity. Is it? worth trying to do a worldwide release in that situation well, let's hypothetically let's say 50 percent. that's still i mean the studios are counting on like full houses you know for these bums in seats yeah. three days straight on the opening weekend right yeah. and it's like so let's say it's 50 percent. Mm-hmm. you know that's like oh, that's that you know the calculations change dramatically just with that mm-hmm. well i mean if if i think ahead uh we have got concert tickets in a I think the first one's in July and the other one, it was a festival which was supposed to be at the beginning of uh, June. It's been pushed to the end of August. But if those festival, if the concert and the festival go ahead, uh, there's almost no way I'm going to go because uh, I just don't feel that the we're going to be in a situation where I'm going to feel safe about that. And I'm sure there are many other people that will, be feeling the same way and even at the end of the year uh i think it's going to be um especially if there's a second wave which they're they're predicting at the at the end of the year then it's uh i'm i'm i i'd rather stay at home and avoid it yeah i'm pretty sure i'm an agoraphobic after this spooked myself i think that about kind of wraps it up eh? It's been, there's yeah. always uh, there's always good uh, good times for the podcast, and now is it right? You can't ex- <laughs> you can't have an excuse for not showing up. That's right. No. <laughs> oh well, in that case, I don't thank you for joining me because you weren't doing anything anyway, and I hope to talk to you <laughs> pretty soon. Well, Paul, it was, it was... No, no, it was my, it was my night to wash my hair. So no, no, I I, I put myself what? out. Hands, David. Hands. Well, and, and Paul, it was great. To... <laughs> Paul, it was great to hear from you again. So <laughs> probably about it. That's it. <laughs> thanks, thanks again for uh, for, Good for having to me. You. Yeah. But it reminds me also of of Tom Baker, uh, who played Doctor Who. Well, if 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 you can indulge me, one non-Bond example. This is an interesting point, Bill. Is he the only Bond actor to have been officially cast as Bond twice? Unless you count Connery. Well, Connery was, of course. (laughs) All right. Um, That was a lot of nonsense. Thank you for... uh... Thank you for joining us. Um, We'll see you soon. I'm Jack Jack Lord and Friends.
I'll do what I please. Golden eye, no time for sweetness, but a bitter kiss will bring him to his knees. You'll never know how I watched you from the shadows as a child. You'll never know how it feels to be the one who's left behind. Sweetness, but a bit of kiss will bring him to his knees. 